Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello my friends and welcome to Idle Chatter. Ray Bohax here, the Hot Rod Farmer, your host. And I hope that you're having a blessed and successful day and a profitable one. I'm sure that the harvest is winding down in most places of the country, except where they got some uh, real wet weather, be it either snow or rain. But hopefully, God willing, you'll be able to uh, get into the field soon and get the rest of that crop out and move on to the next uh, next part of the journey. You know, lots of times, I'm sure that you feel the same way. I know on our farm here, as soon as we get done with our sweet corn harvest, that there's a rush, there's actually a race uh, to get the cover crop in. So I have to uh, cut down my corn, and I usually spray off any escapes, and then I uh, broadcast the cover crop seed down. And I've said this before in the podcast, and it's a race because we do broadcast it, and I need to be able to catch enough moisture to to get that seed germinated and up uh, and up and growing. And uh, you know that's why I just try to get in as soon as possible because you know the weather. I guess the weather is probably no different than it's been the past hundred years. It's just that whatever you're experiencing at the time uh, doesn't seem to be normal. But lots for a number of years we've gotten no rain for like three or four weeks, and then though I love all animals, I does not my does not do my heart good to see all the crows and geese in the field uh, eating that fifty dollar a bag cover crop seed. But I guess they have to eat too, and the good Lord supplies, and uh, somehow despite them eating it, that they uh, I I do get a good stand of cover crop. But this year I didn't have that case. Uh, I was able to get it down right away and we had uh, sufficient moisture afterwards. So it actually came up pretty good. But uh, what I want to do is we're going to have a, uh, the topic we're going to discuss today is understanding the difference between rebuilt, remanufactured, and obviously new. And uh, new is a little bit more complicated than the word first implies. So we're going to discuss that when it comes to parts that you buy in the farm. But as always, I'd like to start with a little story. And those that you have, those of you that have listened to me uh, over the past two months or so, know that I am a storyteller, and I, I love stories. I love to hear stories. I love uh, sermons in church that start with a story or into or integrate a story someplace along the way. And I love uh, podcasts with stories. So uh, I guess I'm just I love story songs. I guess I'm just a story kind of guy. But anyway. When I had my engine shop, I used to look forward to going to Michigan, and I guess there's not a car guy that can't that doesn't look forward to going to Michigan to the Detroit area and Motor City, 
but there is a there is a company that was thankfully they're still in existence called Superflow, and they used to make automotive uh, test equipment for they made predominantly they made chassis dynamometers, engine dynamometers, and flow benches to test cylinder heads and airflow through different components of the engine, predominantly for cylinder heads. Uh, development work, but you could flow anything on it. You could flow a sewer pipe on it if you wanted to. So it would measure airflow. And they had about two or three times a year, probably two times a year, they would have seminars. And these seminars were excellent. They were uh, they they were led by, or they were run by OE engineers. OE meaning original equipment engineers from the big three automakers. And they were uh, just just wonderful, wonderful seminars. And the the seminar was always a topic that the engineer worked with. So it wasn't something where you had a guy who was designing door hinges, then he was telling you about camshafts. So these were de- these were development engineers. And within the engineering community, a development engineer is somebody who uh, works in R and D and brings new technologies to the market. I guess that's the most simplistic way. There's no uh, real definition of it, but the simplistic way for those that are not in the engineering community to understand it versus a just a traditional engineer where they would give him a task and say okay you know he had design a door hinge for this car or design a, a you know the proverbial dipstick and i'm not making light of that whatsoever because that's a, that's not an easy task either but the development guys are really where the passion of the industry lies and if you uh, and they all start off as just regular straight engineers you know doing the door the the door hinge dipstick routine and then they grow into being a development engineer but anyway the development guys always taught this class and there was uh, people from General Motors and there was people from Chrysler and there was a guy from Ford I think I went to one of his classes so uh, and and they were based upon engine development because Superflow was a uh, testing company as far as engines is concerned. So they was so all of the seminars, you know, in a roundabout way, as I said last week in the podcast, um, indirect return on investment there, indirect return on investment was to have a development guy talk about engine development since they were a, a flow bench and dynamometer company. But anyway... I remember going to one of the one of the seminars, and I think it was on camshaft design, and it was run by Ken Sperry, and there was at the time this was about 20 years ago. There was two Sperry brothers, and they were just and they worked for General Motors, both of them. I had met and known Ken. I don't remember if I recall meeting the other brother, nor do I remember his name. But they were real cool guys, and they're just, they were, you know, ground-up engineers, uh, and they were, you know, hot rodders, and went to school, and I think, I think Ken may have even had a doctorate degree. Uh, But anyway, but they would, they were just real, uh, you know, real, you know, grease under your fingernails, PhDs, uh, which is the type of people that I love. But anyway, so, uh, I was having lunch with Ken Sperry at this seminar, he was teaching it, and I forgot what we were were talking about, and, you know, like most people, I would use that opportunity to pick his brain, and, but try not to be too, too, uh, too, uh, aggressive with it, or too overly enthusiastic, because the guy wants to eat lunch, and so he's, I forgot what context we were discussing this, and I remember him saying to me, Ray, if you do not have holes in the sheetrock of your dino cell, 
then that means you're not trying hard enough to make horsepower. And basically what he's saying is that if you're trying, if your dyno cell, where the engine dynamometer is and where you test your engines are, if you didn't blow stuff up and when, you know, when when you blow up an engine on a dyno, especially a race engine, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty dramatic. I mean, depending upon what blows up, uh, it's either going through the side or the top. So he's saying if you don't have your sheet holes, if you if you don't have holes in your sheetrock, that means you're not trying hard enough to make horsepower because you're not breaking anything and blowing anything up. And I remember Ken told me that the uh, most dramatic explosions that they had at General Motors uh, near test facility back years ago in Warren, Michigan, was when GM was doing development work on the Wankel, the rotary engine that they were going to come out with. And they ha- and he says, boy, he says, those things grenaded. He says, they really took the room out. But, uh, but anyway, so he's saying to me, if you don't have enough holes, enough any holes in your dyno cell, then sheetrock, you're not trying hard enough to make horsepower. And I guess that goes with everything. If you don't have any failures, then you're not trying enough. If you don't have any crop, I don't want to say crop failures, but but um, trying a different product on your crop or a different procedure and in a test plot if you don't have any failures anybody who tells you they have no failures then they're certainly not trying hard enough to get yield but the reason why I'm telling you this is because I have a failure and it's a very very embarrassing failure and I'm paying penance and I need to come clean with this because uh, that's what you got to do as a Christian guy you got to come clean and last week I was so excited to tell you that a new uh, website was was hosting my Idle Chatter podcast that I had the embarrassment of calling it by the wrong name. And you know, when I do this podcast, as I've said you know before, is that I know what I want to talk about, and it's totally unscripted, and I record it, and I know what I want to say, and it's just me talking to you. I want you to feel as if I'm talking to you alone, not talking to an audience, because that's really how I how I feel that what I'm doing here. So, with my zeal to promote and to uh, to support and to be so excited about this new network that is hosting my podcast, is that I had the embarrassment of calling it by the by the wrong name. I called it the Farm and Ranch Ag Network, and it's really the Farm and Rural Ag Network. And I don't know why I called it Farm and Ranch, and I listen to these podcasts before I send them to Sue Moore, my web person, to... uh, to put the to edit them and put the closing music and the beginning music and closing music on it and adjust the sound quality as best as she can and it didn't even strike me and then like two days later I was getting ready to uh, fall asleep I was laying in bed and it's funny how things hit you and I said oh my god I said I called that farm and ranch it's farm and rural so I immediately the next morning sent a very apologetic email to the Fran Network Farm and Rural Network, Ag Network, and they uh, they accepted my apology and and actually chuckled at it. So they're, they're great people over at Fran. And matter of fact, I have on my desk in front of me, I got a big piece of paper. It says Farm and Rural Ag Network. So please, um, if you listen to my podcast on my website also check out the Fran network 
and if you listen to it on the Fran Network, I'm very thankful for that. And I ask you to also check out my website. Listen to the podcast there, but come to my website, farmmachinerydigest.com, because there's other things, other educational tools there for you to help support you in the farm. And also, I am excited to tell you, uh, it's almost every week I have something exciting to tell you, and I think that's really, I mean, I'm very blessed to be able to say that because... uh, the good Lord is blessing this website and podcast and moving things forward at a much faster rate than I had even hoped for and with a much greater acceptance level and I'm humbled by that but the Fran Network also has a digital magazine called Ag Now and the website is www.agnow one word on the website obviously puts Ag Now and it is a uh, they started it looks like about a year ago and I think next month I'm going to start to contribute to that which is uh, which is a great honor to me but they have some really really great if you look at the back issues they have some really great writers there uh, they try to cover the whole gamut of, uh, of, of agriculture and I'm going to be bringing in a machinery component to it and they have uh, you know, agronomy and they have uh, human interest articles and articles about farm life and uh, some really great writers I know that if people are on Twitter that a lot of people follow Meredith Bernard and she also used to write for Successful Farming Magazine as I do but I know that she has a column now on Progressive Farmer So um, and and she does a great job as far as is talking about the humanistic side of being uh, living on a farm and and from a woman's perspective and and also just from a human perspective so she's a contributor to that and I believe that Rob Sharkey uh, contributes to that I don't know if he contributes on a continual basis but what have you check it out it's ag now it's a digital magazine so it's free you could uh, bring it up on your computer and read it and it'll bring a lot of value to you and uh, like I say so please check it out so now that I've paid my penance and I'm going to keep this on my desk it's a farm and rural ag network well anyway uh, what I want to talk about today is the terms rebuilt remanufactured and new and these apply to both the automotive sector of parts and also the agricultural machinery sector and to tell you the truth these same qualifiers probably apply to anything if you're looking to get a part for your well pump this usually the same three words can be applied to describe the part that you're buying and it's often misunderstood and lots of times the terms are used interchangeably so what I'm going to do is I'm going to paint this scenario to you and it's a very basic scenario so let's say that you uh, determine that on your haybine we'll pick on that today that you let's say you have a a John Deere haybine and you are and you go out to start it or do something and you determine that the alternator is not charging and through diagnostics which we're not going to get into you glean that the problem is in the alternator so you're going to want to replace the alternator and get this haybine up and running so now you have most likely three choices you could purchase a rebuilt alternator you could purchase a remanufactured alternator or you could purchase a new alternator and then when we get to the new 
uh, description, uh, that's going to be broken down into two different flow paths when it comes to new. So, and a lot of people uh, aren't aware of that. So, let's give you a little history. Well, first of all, the whole problem is there is no qualifier within the industry that says that that this is rebuilt or remanufactured. So in other words, the Society of Automotive Engineers, the equipment manufacturers, what have you, have not gotten together and wrote a code, or a code meaning a standard, to say, okay, it has to have this and this done to it to fall into this category. Obviously, new is new. It means that everything is new in it. But really, where it becomes the gray area is the rebuilt and the remanufactured. And because there are no standards, you could go and or a company could go and they could do as little as they want or, or as much as they want and still fall into that same descriptive term of rebuilt or remanufactured. Now think of it this way. You're a farmer. You could go out into the field and you could plant a crop. So let's say since I'm a corn farmer, I'm going to pick corn. And you could put so the actual the 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 actual action of of planting is physically putting the seed in the ground. However, it gets in the ground through a planter, through a mechanized system, or with your hand planting, what have you. So that's planting. So if you could put the seed in the ground and you could cover the seed up, then that's qualified as planting. You could say I planted the seed, and you would be a hundred percent factual in that statement. You are planting the seed. Now, but we all know that there's a lot more in detail to that other than putting the seed in the ground. So when we're getting ready to plant, we're doing a lot of preparatory work to the the soil. It could be where we are uh, spraying off or killing off weeds in a cover crop. If If you are doing some sort of tillage, then you may be doing some level of tillage onto the ground, moving the soil around, be it a minimum till, be it a full till, be it a moldboard plow, what have you. Uh, you're usually spraying onto the soil uh, some sort of pre-emergence weed killer to give the crop a chance to get established before the weeds start to take over. And you're and you're putting usually putting down some sort of fertilizer, whether the fertilizer is with the planter, with the two by two, or you're broadcasting fertilizer, or or doing a combination of uh, of broadcast two by two and in the furrow, and then you're actually planting the seed, and the seed and planting the seed meaning that you're putting the seed in the soil and covering covering it up. Uh, putting a seed in the ground and covering back up with soil is what I should really be saying. My tongue got twisted there. And that all qualifies as planting. So a farmer A goes out into the field and does nothing and has a planter and it has a double disc opener. It has no it does not have no till cultures. And he goes out into the field and he rides over the weeds and rides over everything and he gets some of that seed in the ground. He probably has a very low percentage of that seed that's actually getting in the ground and even a lower percentage of that that's getting covered up. Uh, and the, the furrow that's made by the double disc opener closed. And he's riding and putting the seed in the ground while he's planting, correct? And is he going to get much yield or much, much results from that? 
and we could all say with confidence, no, he's probably the majority of his seed did not get covered. The seed that did get covered is going to be fighting the weeds right, right from the get-go. And uh, he has the only fertility that is there is whatever happened to be naturally in the soil, and he and he will get some germination. There's nobody that's that's nobody's going to deny that, and he will get some emergence, but he's not going to get a yield. So, the reason why I made that analogy is because that is what rebuilt is. Now. If anybody is listening to this and you are in the rebuilding business, then this is not a, a, uh, a shot at you. It's not anything. But when you go to the parts counter and the parts man says to you, okay, for your John Deere combine, right, you could get a, and I'm going to throw arbitrary numbers, you could get a rebuilt alternator for thirty nine ninety nine. You could get a remanufactured alternator for $79.99, or you could get a new alternator from an aftermarket company for $199.99, or you get a new alternator from John Deere for $299.99. And I just made up these numbers to show an escalation in price. Now, when you take all three or four of them out of the box, they're all painted, they all look pretty clean, they all look clean, they all look pretty good, and the thing is that if you don't understand these terms, then it's very easy for you to make a decision strictly based on the investment, the amount of money you're going to spend for that part, that alternator in this particular instance. Now, within the rebuilt community, there are good brands of rebuilds and there's poor brands of rebuilds. The poorest brand of rebuild actually takes that, I'm going to use an alternator for example, and I'll keep this theme of an alternator throughout. And the reason why I like to use an alternator when I teach this is because there's a lot of components in a small package. When you look inside an alternator, there's a stator, there's a rotor. The stator is the windings that are in the case that go around the circumference. There's the rotor that spins. There are two bearings. There's, in most newer applications the past 30 years, there's an internal voltage regulator, and there's a series and there's a series of diodes, and usually there's a noise suppression condenser in there. So, and there's brushes. So you have all of these components in this alternator. Now, the least expensive, I shouldn't say the least expensive, the poorest quality, because that doesn't mean you're paying the least expensive at the parts counter, the poorest quality rebuilt alternator means that they take it apart, they determine what is wrong, and they usually replace what has failed at that particular point. They clean it up and they spray paint it. They take it apart, they sandblast it. Usually they spray paint it silver. Paint hides a lot of sins. Just like manure and rain hides a lot of sins with poor farming, poor agronomy, right? And they take it and they, they, spray, they spray paint it and they put, they replace what is broken in it or what's failed in is probably a more accurate way of saying it. And they put it back together and they sell it. Now, the thing is that I chose my words very carefully, and I will repeat them. They replace what has failed. So let's say the internal voltage regulator failed. 
so you're going to assume that they're putting a new one in there and the company may very well be putting a new one in there or they may be putting a used one from another alternator that, of the same series that did not have a failed regulator you're assuming that they're putting new brushes in but if the brushes are not completely shot they may not put new brushes in or they may put used brushes in or you could have a good rebuilder and the good rebuilder will go and what they will do is that they will replace they will fix or replace what is failed and they will replace all of the consumables and the consumables that they may qualify the consumable as the brushes so let's say one of the brushes wore out so you could conceivably have an alternator that is nice and clean and repainted and it was brought in and, and turned in on an exchange basis because one of the brushes wore out and was no longer touching the uh, you know, touching the slip ring the commutator in the alternator so the alternator wasn't charging and they put a used set of brushes in it they paint it they put it back together and they sell it to to a supplier tractor dealer auto parts store what have you at a very low price and a very high profit margin for them because they really have nothing invested in it or very little invested in it and they did more on cosmetics than they did on anything so let's say that that alternator had 4,000 hours on it so basically in essence you're getting an alternator with 4,000 hours on the stator 4,000 hours on the on the rotor 4,000 hours on the voltage regulator 4,000 hours on the diodes on on the bearings on everything and they replaced the brush and let's let's give them credit they put a new set of brushes in it but i've seen it where they put used brushes in it and now it's charging you say oh hey man that's great i went to town i got this alternator 29.99 39.90 whatever the number is low ball price you bring it home you put it on the hay bind and it either doesn't charge or it charges for for three days three weeks or whatever a month and 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 dies because something else went wrong in it now so the the take-home message here is that if you're going to buy a rebuilt alternator unless you are very familiar with the rebuilder but if you're going to be a very price sensitive shopper there's a probably a 99.99 percent chance you're going to get an alternator that was repaired at best with used parts and maybe one or two new parts like the brushes because they're cheap you're going to get the old bearings you're going to get the everything else is going to be old in it the commutator is not going to be polished it's not going to be cut it's it's nothing is going to be done to it other than that now if you find a rebuilder that does a very good job right then he's going to go in there and he's going to say well okay the bearings feel all right i'm going to keep the bearings all right the uh i'm going to put new brushes in the diodes check okay today i'm going to put new i'm going to keep the old diodes i'm going to polish the uh the commutator and the slip rings and i'm going to put a new voltage regulator in but i'm not going to put an oe style voltage regulator i'm going to put a cheap one from china so now you have a new chinese voltage regulator you got chinese brushes and maybe something else in there and you put it he puts it together and it charges and yeah, this is this is a crapshoot. Is it going to last? I have no idea if it's going to last. He doesn't know if it's going to last. And the the guy at the parts guy says, "Well, we got a 90-day guarantee on it." The 90-day guarantee is nothing. Is that 
you know, as I've said before, as I look at farm equipment like emergency equipment, like an ambulance or a fire truck, you need to use this when you have to use it. And also, you're in the business of growing crops or raising cattle or, or raising hogs or poultry. You're not in the business of changing alternators all day long. And most of the time, you know, <laughs> these things are not that easy to work on. You don't want to get out into the field with that hay bind, start to, to mow your alfalfa, and uh, see some, you know, here see some storm clouds coming, and see the charge light go on, uh, 15 minutes after you put the alternator in, which is a two and a half hour job to do it. So I mean, that's what we spoke about return on investment. There's no return on investment there. So, basically, in essence, unless you have an in-town rebuilder that you deal with, that you know, an auto electric shop that has a very good reputation that you could bring him the alternator or the starter or whatever it may be and say to him, okay, hey, you know, Sam, go through this. And he says, okay, hey, you know, hey, Ray, I think we should put some new bearings in. I don't like the way they look. They look, the rollers look kind of dry and this and that and what have you. And he goes through it and he, and you know what he's changed in it or not then I would be very leery of an over-the-counter, especially a very inexpensive, re- supposedly rebuilt alternator, because that really should be not called rebuilt. It should be called, we fixed what didn't work at that time, and we're not telling you whether we put new parts in or not. And, you know, I've, in my in my career, I've, t- I've, I've taken supposedly rebuilt alternators. I took them apart, and <laughs> they were horrendous. I mean, they were horrendous. So, I mean, I wouldn't want you to do that. So the next step is remanufactured. And when we come to remanufactured, then that means that a, and then again, there's just like there's good farmers and bad farmers. There's good doctors and bad doctors. There's good teachers and bad teachers. So the thing basically is, is that a, a, a well remanufactured alternator or any piece, what it basically does it will go and it will replace all of the consumables and it will also do other procedures for instance like turn down the slip rings it'll uh it may recoat the windings in the stator it'll put a new bearings in it it'll put new bearings in it it'll put a new voltage regulator it'll put so it'll basically the hard parts the case and probably the stator and rotor will be machined well the rotor would be machined but not the stator and then it would put all new parts and possibly put new diodes in it and then so there's different levels of remanufactured and then historically the best remanufactured parts are from the oe supplier so in other words, if you go to John Deere, if you get a John Deere remanufactured alternator, because you could get a remanufactured alternator from Ray's alternator shop, if he changes all that stuff, it could still be qualified as remanufactured, even though there's no true industry standard for it. But if you go and get, if you you know, if you for a road vehicle. You go to Ford and you get a Motorcraft remanufactured alternator. There's a very good chance that, that Ford or John Deere is not doing that, that they're sending it out to a remanufacturer. But a bigger company, like a John Deere, a case, or Ford Motor Company, Chrysler, what have you, is that they're going to supply the parts that they want to go in it, and they're just really buying the other man's labor and services. And a a remanufactured alternator from the original manufacturer is usually your best bet, and it's most likely going to be more costly than a remanufactured alternator from somebody else. But the other thing a remanufactured 
part usually has when the original manufacturer is involved to some level with this is that if they have any updates to that part they said oh man you know, we really found out that that these wires are making something up as they go along these wires that come from the stator uh stator to the to the uh to the uh, rectifier bridge sometimes rub over here because they need to have a, a be moved a quarter of an inch so usually a, a OE original equipment remanufactured part be it alternator engine what have you injection pump has all of the latest modifications and or updates that they found from that part being in service for years whereas a off-brand no disrespect to them off-brand part historically does not have that so your next so your your next bet is to get a remanufactured part and to get a remanufactured part from the original equipment manufacturer and that and you usually most companies will brag on the box or on the literature of what they change or say new bearings new this new this new that you know uh, machine uh, lathe spun uh, rotor they'll usually brag as selling points on on the box or on the literature and then the th the third possibility is to get something new now years ago when you bought something new you were getting it from from the original source you were getting it from the the equipment manufacturer the engine manufacturer the car manufacturer so if you you had a gm car and you bought a new delco alternator you were going and getting a a, a delco alternator that was made by delco but what has happened over a number of years is that there's a lot of offshore companies that are manufacturing new parts and it's new everything is new inside i'm not going to deny that i mean new is new right i mean it's virgin nobody's ever owned it before it's never worked it never was operated before and so there's two levels of new there's original equipment new so you're going to john deere and buying a new alternator it may not be an alternate john deere probably does not make that alternator within this within the uh the industry there's different what they call supplier tiers so maybe uh, Presto Light if they're still in business makes that alternator for John Deere but it's made to John Deere specifications and it's the same alternator that John Deere would put on in the assembly line so that's a original equipment new now you could go into town or you could go to the to the implement dealer and they may say well we have a john deere new but we also have a bosch new or we have a nipendenzo new or we have some other company new and then that would be totally made by an aftermarket company and i'm not saying they're not good all right but they usually do not have the quality of the OE new because it doesn't have the updates in it and it usually does not have the same level of quality of parts that the OE would demand. Contrary to what people may think, and I did a podcast on this a while back, contrary to what people would think, the OE manufacturer has the highest quality parts. I mean, with rare exception, are you going to buy anything that was, that was produced for the aftermarket that has a higher quality in the OE because there's no company I don't care whether it's a car company whether it's a farm equipment company whether you know whether it's a, a, a trucking truck manufacturer the washing machine company nobody wants no company wants to have parts failed because they don't want warranty claims because warranty claims not only provide customer dissatisfaction 
but they also uh, cost them a lot of money, and they're usually, usually on a rubber band or they're on a bungee cord. They go so far out, and they come and they bite the company again because the mechanic that was working on it, he's changing your valve cover gasket because it's leaking, and he messes up a whole bunch of other stuff under the hood while he's doing it. So their whole goal is for, for them not to have to touch that piece of equipment, that engine, anything during its warranty period at all because they just know that once somebody starts to touch it, if the mechanic is not careful, the technician, or if he's not a good technician, he's going to wreck more stuff along the way and then you're going to say, hey man, I got this new pickup truck and you know uh, the check engine light went on and then the, you, I brought it in and you fixed it but the guy busted half the stuff under the hood working on it and then they end up giving you a new truck or a new combine or what have you so and and you know and contrary to what you're know, using that term again is that you know in industry in business i shouldn't say in industry and i'm breaking away uh from this as an aside is that your know, farmers really don't do this too much because they really don't advertise they look for a market for their grain or they look for a market for their cattle or their livestock or whatever they're raising they don't really advertise unless they're doing direct market to the customer uh, so if you're selling your milk directly to the customer, to the end user, then obviously you're going to do advertising. If you're selling your milk to a dairy, then you're going to shop around for who's going to give you the best price or who services that area. And that's you know obviously one of the problems in agriculture is that you know we we have no control over the price give that we get in most instances. I mean, there's a little bit of leeway. I mean, like I sell fresh market sweet corn, so I could have a little bit of flexibility on what I want to charge for my sweet corn, but that flexibility is also limited because if the guy down the road is selling sweet corn, you know, I can't get, I could only get a certain amount of premium over his, or he can only get a certain amount of premium over mine. So it's not like you're dealing with the Chicago Board of Trade, but the market does demand that, that the cost is, that the price is within a certain window. But, you know, the, uh, I guess to get back to that point is that, you know, there's an old saying in business that, you know, it's a lot cheaper to retain a customer than to buy a customer. And sadly, a lot of people in business don't realize that today. And that's the old school way, because whenever you advertise, you are spending money to buy a customer. So... And the whole thing is to have retention of that customer because it's less expensive. You have less of an investment as a, as a, as a company to retain a customer than to purchase a new customer. And anytime you advertise, anybody who advertises, I had a seed company advertises, they're trying to buy a customer. That's what they're doing. Ford advertises to sell your car or pickup truck. They're trying to buy a customer. And sadly, the mindset today in business is they spend a lot of money to buy the customer. And when there's an issue, because people don't have the heart of a servant, the proper mindset today is that they they end up disenfranchising the customer by not handling the situation properly. And, they, and so instead of giving the guy a, a $10 whatever, or, or you buy a $300,000 combine and something is wrong and they give you a $1,000 part on it or a $2,000 part to keep you happy, they, they argue with you. And then they, they go and they they go to the magazines and to the radio and TV and spend $10 million to advertise, but they wouldn't give you a $10 part to make you happy. And, you know, we didn't have that years ago in the industry. And uh, people realized but what it was and they honored the customer. But anyway, so like I said, advertising is buying a customer. So the auto manufacturers, the equipment manufacturers, everybody would rather have that 
piece, whatever component they are, get through warranty with no issues, and and so they don't have to spend any money to retain you as a customer, and they would rather retain you as a customer through satisfaction with the part. So if you go to town and you buy that rebuilt alternator, and you put it on your hay barn, and you work it for two hours or two days or two weeks, and it goes back out again, and now you lose your, your, your alfalfa cutting because it gets all wet, or what have you, or you miss your planting window because uh, the tractor is broken down, when a planter is broken down, that's not a good way to, to, to make a relationship with a farmer. So the thing is that and you, if you're dealing with a rebuilder that is just rebuilding alternators, using that as an example again, and he doesn't, he just gets a whole bunch of alternators in, and when he re- takes that alternator apart, other than the clock position of the case, or maybe where the bolt holes are, it, it doesn't care whether it's in a pickup truck, whether it's in a minivan, whether it's in a taxi cab, or whether it's in a combine, or what have you, it doesn't know. It's doing the same thing, it's making electricity. So he goes, and you know, a rebuilder like that, he doesn't care. He's just looking to turn numbers and make a high profit per unit. Whereas if you buy a remanufactured or a new unit from the OE supplier, then they have usually an intrinsic interest in wanting to retain you and with that brand and offer you a much better part because they don't want to have you to have problems and get disgusted to the entire brand and you know and that's a card that we really need to play in agriculture because we're very very brand loyal we're brand loyal with our trucks or brand loyal with our equipment you know these guys you know are very brand loyal and then we really need to at, at times when necessary you know you know pull that ace card out of our sleeve and say hey you know i buy three million dollars in equipment from you over the past 10 years i need this taken care of i need this taken care of now and there's nothing wrong with that that's simply business i mean as a writer if i have an editor he calls me up and says geez can you move up a story deadline i need this really something happen i need it you know tuesday instead of uh i need it in two days instead of two weeks i say no problem sir that's it because i realize that there's a lot of other people they could go to between their office and me to write an article for them so the thing is that so we need to play that card but to recap this as we move on into the next segment is we recap there's rebuilt which you have no idea what you're getting we have remanufactured where you're going to have an aftermarket remanufactured or an original equipment remanufactured the best choice is the original equipment and then once you get into new you're going to have a new aftermarket and you're going to have a new from the original equipment manufacturer the most expensive part is going to be the new from the original equipment manufacturer most most times sometimes you'd be surprised if you price shop it and then you'll Act, you'll go down in your actual cost, your investment for it. But I do want to stress that do not think that everything is the same. And when possible, if you have an older piece of equipment, you may have no choice. But when possible, try to at least go for a remanufactured part. And uh, and if you can, from a uh, from the OE equipment manufacturer, and if not from a reputable rebuilder that you could that you have some experience with, or the guy at the parts counter uh, says to you that hey, you know this is we've had really good luck with these remanufactured units. We've had very little failures. I mean, look, stuff breaks. When the car industry, sadly, I mean it's a unpolitically correct thing to say today, but we used to say you know somebody said I bought a new car and the thing died three days later. Well, you know babies die sadly there's plenty of broken-hearted parents that have lost a newborn child and things things happen but 
but tell you the truth, with today, with the manufacturing prowess that that good companies have is that the failure rates are very 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 low and uh like i say please don't be a price shopper with that you know there's a difference between spending money and investing money and i think whenever you buy equipment or buy anything for your farm machinery that you that you need to look at as an investment to get a return on your investment as i said in you know in a podcast last week but you need to get a return on investment because if that thing doesn't run or it doesn't work or you have to spend your time doing that i mean if that's the case then you know sell a farm and or rent out the acres and take the shop and make it into a repair shop if you like fixing everything two or three times so so that's basically it rebuilt reman remanufactured and new and when possible you know go for a uh, new and or a oe remanufactured part and that'll be money well spent well now we're going to go to our special delivery segment and it is brought to you by firestone ag a company founded by Harvey Firestone, a fourth-generation farmer from Columbiana, Ohio. Harvey dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors, and his innovative mindset is the core of Firestone Ag today, and lives on with their 23-degree tread bar and AD2 technology. The soil is the lifeblood of your farm. Trust it only to Firestone. And I agree with that a thousand percent because, hey, the tire is what's touching the ground. And, uh, you know, a high quality tire that, that returns a lot, uh, a lot of other elements, I should say. But the soil compaction is probably the biggest thing that I'm concerned with. And to tell you the truth, I mean, I'm like paranoid about riding on my soil now that I fixed it. So it's like, I, I don't even like walking on it if it's wet. But anyway, but that's me. Now, I have a letter here, and it's from Bill in Nevada. He doesn't say where he is in Nevada, but I will read it to you. And this actually was left over from last week. I went long, and I did not get a chance to answer it, so I'm going to answer it today. And he writes, I have a Polaris UTV with an EFI engine that recently has become very hard to start. It seems to start fine if you leave it for a few minutes, but in the morning it cranks a good deal, and also during the day if it is left for about an hour. We live on a ranch, okay, so I guess he's not in Las Vegas. We live on a ranch, and I use it every day to check cattle. It always ends up running, it always ends up running, but really cranks over for a long time before starting. Thanks, Bill. Okay, and. Uh, well, first of all, Bill, I want to thank you for writing to me. And I, the key in Bill's whole letter there is EFI. That stands for Electronic Fuel Injection. And what I'm going to tell Bill pertains to probably every EFI application that there is. And I don't care whether it's on a car, your wife's minivan, a truck, uh, uh, whatever, UTV, an irrigation motor. That's a gasoline motor that has electronic fuel injection. Electronic fuel injection is different than a carburetor. A carburetor has a float ball, and the float ball is like a like the like the tank on a on a commode on a toilet, and it holds the gasoline. And the fuel pump supplies the float float ball, and the float ball supplies the fuel, the gasoline, to the circuit of the carburetor. With EFI, we don't have that. With EFI, you need to have an electric fuel pump, and in lieu of a float ball, it has what is called a fuel rail. And the line from the fuel tank, or from the fuel pump, I should say, because the pump sucks on one side and then pressurizes the fuel to go to the fuel rail. Now, 
All EFI systems are high pressure compared to a carburetor. A carburetor is between 5 and 9 pounds of fuel pressure, usually an automotive style application, even on like an irrigation type of motor. Let's say it's a Ford 460 or a Chevy motor or what have you. That's going to be an automotive style carburetor, probably run about 7 pounds of fuel pressure. But anyway, I mean, you may get a uh, a lawnmower that's not going to run 7 pounds, but, but any type of, you use the word automotive style. Uh, the same thing with like a UTV. If it has a gasoline engine, it's probably going to run around 5 to 6 pounds of fuel pressure, 7 pounds of fuel pressure if it has a carburetor. But with EFI, the fuel pressure is substantially higher. It's probably at least 40 to 45 pounds on a port port EFI system, port meaning that it has an injector for each cylinder, and uh, it could be up as high as 70 or 80 pounds, but the industry standard is probably around 40 to 45 pounds. And the fuel rail is what attaches uh, the fuel line to the injector, and it looks like a pipe, it looks like a manifold, and then the inject there will be an injector that goes into the fuel rail, and the injector has a top feed where the gasoline comes in, and then the bottom of the injector is going to reside in the intake manifold and spray the fuel. So the fuel rail has very little capacity. It doesn't have a lot of holding capacity, like a carburetor float pole does, so what happens is that the fuel pump needs to what's called prime the fuel rail and for the engine to start and next time you get into your fuel injected whatever all right uh, it's probably easiest if you have a car or a pickup truck you could hear this what i want you to do is you go into the vehicle you close the door so the doorbell chime isn't chiming you shut the radio off and you take the ignition key and you twist it to on on is where the idiot lights uh, or run, it's, it's on or run, whoever whatever you want to call it, is when the idiot lights come on and you will hear bzzz click. And what that is, is that when you first turn the key on, that there is going to be a two second prime. And what it's going to do is it's going to evoke the fuel pump to prime or charge that fuel rail for it to have fuel at the injector. And then after two seconds, it shuts the fuel pump off if the ECU does not see a tax signal from the engine to identify that it's cranking or running. So if you don't hear that two-second prime, now the proper way to start any EFI engine, you don't care what it's in, is to turn the key on to run, hear the two-second prime, let the fuel rail prime, and then go in to crank because now you're just cranking the engine and pulsing the injectors with a primed fuel rail. If you go real quickly or right into crank and the fuel rail bled down, you're going to have a slightly extended crank, crank time because it has to charge the rail while the injectors are still st are, are being pulsed. So the proper way to start your pickup truck or anything, this UTV, is to turn the key on, hear bzzz, click and then go into crank you don't have to cycle the key off go into crank what sounds like happening with this polaris utv is that it's not evoking the two second prime and if it's not evoking the two second prime all of these engines have some sort of fail safe and they're usually based upon oil pressure if you look at the oil pressure switch for the gauge you idiot like there's usually an extra wire on it and what will usually happen is that the way they're wired up and 
each app manufacturers have slightly different specifications but a general rule is that when the engine builds if the fuel pump doesn't turn on because the relay is defective then what will happen is that when it builds around four pounds of oil pressure the oil pressure switch will bypass the fuel pump relay and turn the fuel pump on and the engine will run so historically when you have an extended crank with a EFI engine in any application during you have an extended crank watch your oil pressure light if you crank it and the oil pressure light or the gauge moves off and all of a sudden it fires then there's a very good chance that you have a defective fuel pump relay and it's powering up the fuel pump through the through the auxiliary circuit the other possibility is that the ECU is not issuing the two-second prime I would have to say to uh, Bill from Nevada you need to get a wiring diagram for that I almost guarantee you there's a fuel pump relay there and that fuel pump relay has gone bad and you're starting that engine on the oil pressure switch or the backup which is usually the oil pressure switch so it's the adverse of or the, the mirror opposite of like a small engine like on a gen set that'll have a low oil pressure switch that'll shut off the ignition but what this basically does is that if you don't get if you don't prime the fuel pump through the relay uh, prime the fuel rail I should say with the two second prime when you go and crank and build enough oil pressure it closes the pressure switch and uh, turns on the fuel pump and then the the engine runs so that's a textbook example of a bad fuel pump relay uh, it could be a bad prime circuit in the ECU but I doubt that very much I like to pick the low-hanging fruit first so listen thank you so much again for listening I greatly greatly appreciate it and uh, I enjoy delivering these podcasts to you and please feel free you know to contact me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and don't forget to check out the ag now magazine and also you know you could either go to fran the farm and rural ag network i was going to say ranch again for my podcast and it's my podcast is also listed on the ag daily website which is also an excellent site and has a lot of other things on it just as fran does so you may want to bounce back and forth between the two of them or come to or come to my website and uh see what's going on so listen uh, next week's topic is going to be understanding why antifreeze wears out. We're getting into the colder weather, and you need to understand why antifreeze wears out. So listen, uh, I want you to know, as always, that the Hot Rod Farmer is pulling for you, the American farmer and rancher, and this blessed and beloved nation of mine. You have a great week, and hopefully you tune in next time. Thank you, and God bless. Bye-bye.